Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In today's conversation, I speak with Elena Sinel, a multi-award-winning social entrepreneur whose mission is to inspire young people across the world to engage in artificial intelligence for impact. A sought-after AI ethicist, policy advisor and keynote speaker, Elena is trusted by global brands and governments to deliver messages that inspire young people and individuals to build responsible AI. Committed to inspiring young people to make a change in their community, country and economy through passion, agility, teamwork and expert support, Teens in AI, an initiative that Elena founded, is designed to give young people early exposure to AI that is being developed and deployed for social good. Launched at the AI for Good Global Summit at the UN in 2018, Teens in AI aims to empower the next generation of ethical AI researchers, entrepreneurs and leaders who will shape the world of tomorrow. Prior to this work, Elena spent over 10 years travelling, volunteering and working in Central Asia where she grew up, as well as the Balkans, Ethiopia and Bangladesh, where she worked with NGOs and the British Council, developing education, entrepreneurship and mentorship programmes for women and young people. Upon returning to the UK as a single mother of two, Elena was shocked at the state of secondary school education across the UK with its factory-style learning model and was inspired to launch a pioneering educational social impact enterprise providing young people across the globe with opportunities to interact with leading experts in technology to create solutions that solve real-life world problems. Elena, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with you. I have been reading up extensively ahead of our conversation because you are so plugged in to this bonkers world of technology, AI and the humanities. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Natalie, for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure. Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation and I'd like to kick off before we go into the wild and crazy world of AI by asking you what you think is going on in the global human psyche right now. This is a really deep question to start a podcast with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Natalie. Um, obviously, I, uh, um, I know as much as everyone else right now, I think we are being bombarded with so much information. Um, in terms of what's happening in the world of technology, how this is affecting us. Um, there is so much happening um, in the world of politics where, where the, the um, sort of focus of or the concept of democracy is being questioned and uh, um, we're all being shaken up by, by what's happening right now in, in Israel, in France and um, probably also stuff happening in the UK, in the US. Uh, there is a lot going on. Um, and I, th I can imagine um, different people experience different kinds of emotions, whether it's frustration with politics and democracy, whether it's frustration with what's happening um, in the world of technology, um, you know, the, the various um, 
ways we have experienced, um, you know, uh, company CEOs uh, being um, accountable for various uh, fraudulent uh, misconduct and whatnot in Silicon Valley. Um, that echoes, of course, in Europe and in the UK. Mm. Um, and of course, the latest uh, hype with, with AI, uh, various fears uh, that I imagine people are experiencing and uh, a lot of uncertainty, economic turmoil, the predictions of hyperinflation hyperinflation um, in the US and how this is going to affect the rest of the world. Of course, there's quite a lot going on. Mm. Uh, so we're definitely heading um, into this um, very, um, into the period of uncertainty, which of course, uh, you know, we're dealing with quite a lot of unknowns and we don't know how this is going to affect uh, the world of politics, whether there is a risk of um, potential disasters in, um, in, in economies and in, in the world and how we're going to be able to deal with this, and whether we have the leadership, um, the right leaders um, at the top, uh, who will be able to help us um, get through this really tough period. That's how kind of I feel to try and summarize. It's, it's a really <laughs> difficult one to summarize. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of summaries and, and trying to kind of um, grapple with what's what's happening and reading widely, widely trying to listen to different opinions and different from different parts of the world. Mm. But there is no consensus. I think we're all experiencing different things depending on where you are. Mm. And I think the complexity which you point towards is one of the biggest uh, themes that, that certainly has cropped up for me and other people is how do we begin to make any kind of coherent sense yeah. of all of these different intersecting challenges, disruptions, issues in a way that is meaningful because it's such a complex... We're living such complex lives now that it's... I, I don't know how possible it is actually to get a comprehensive view of what it is that we're doing and to orient ourselves and align. And this is one of the things that when we look at AI technology, alignment is one of the biggest issues. How do we align ourselves towards enough of a common vision that embraces enough people of different backgrounds, political orientations, places in the world, levels of wealth and poverty? How do we get enough people on board to, to create perhaps a more coherent idea about where we want to move forward and then make changes to or create new systems in order to allow us to move in that direction? And that's, of course, if we entertain the possibility that those with enough power and influence and people in positions of leadership even would consider opening up um, agency to more people to be able to have a say in how we move forward, which is a, I, I mean, I, yeah, I have a lot of <laughs> questions and thoughts about that, but it's a, it's a, it's a very, very deep topic um, and very big one. And I think again, um, sort of empowering people and trying to unleash their agency. Um, how would this work in the current context? Um, do we even have the agency? Um, to do anything. And of course, uh, looking at some of the events in France and Israel, I think this is what we are out there protesting um, about because the people crave that agency and uh, they do crave um, this opportunity to make change in their lives, in their countries. Uh, but we are experiencing this, this pushback um, and those who are self-proclaimed, um, you know, Democrats, uh, you know, people who have been chosen to lead the country on different terms are now showing uh, traits of um, dictators. Mm. Um, and it's kind of terrifying, I imagine, for people living in those countries being trapped in that kind of situation where they feel quite powerless. And I think this is what I'm seeing in a lot of the countries, despite, you know, I'm seeing Paris on fire, you know, people are protesting, people are putting their foot down and 
uh, to tell the government this is not good enough. You know, you're robbing us of our rights, our freedoms, our democracy. Um, but this is almost falling on deaf ears. But the more we see this happening in European countries, um, personally, I expect more to come. Uh, so, And it's uh, a little bit frightening because it obviously comes closer to where we are and um, the world is very interconnected. So what happens in one part of the world can very easily escalate and it's almost like a little light that needs to happen, you know, to lighten things up um, and things go on fire and it um, really spreads very quickly. We do still remember the revolutions, you know, the, the red, the orange and whatnot, revolutions in um, Central Asia and Eastern Europe and I'm um, feeling there is that same um, air right now um, that um, that is very likely to happen, mm. particularly when when we also compare this to the economic turmoil, the recession, the, you know, the potential hyperinflation. I think this is all um, kind of, uh, there is very little that needs to happen to, to take this world to that next level of where it becomes quite, quite dangerous and quite unpredictable as well. Mm. So... And I think around that point of unpredictability, I mean, nominally, this podcast looks at the intersection of our relationship with one another, with the living world and with technology. And I've been kind of keeping an eye on the tech side, but not much of an active eye, because personally, I'm a lot more excited by the other side of things like, you know, nature connection, the arts, the humanities and music, etc. And yet it's been impossible to ignore the rapid unpredictable advancement of AI and its impact in society within the few short months since was it November mm-hmm. that ChatGPT launched onto the kind of the public stage, if you like. And one of the key themes, particularly for this season, but I have a feeling it's going to extend into future seasons, is how we might begin to understand our current context and reimagine humanity in the face of this accelerating technological advancement alongside ecological disruption and systemic change. And obviously with you, I wanted to dive into the world of AI. And I just thought before we kind of launch into a a conversation and go down these various rabbit holes, I would love to quickly just key everybody in who's listening what some of these terms that we're going to be using signify. So I've made a short list. If you're happy for me to just give people a little bit of an introduction to different forms of AI. Yes, please. Lovely. So brace yourselves, people. And I will probably include these in the show notes so that you have references, as well as all of the articles that we that we cite within our conversation. So things to talk about. Weak AI and strong AI. So weak AI, the modern project of creating almost human-like AI is said to have started after around World War II, when it was discovered that computers, the ones like we have, well, the predecessors to the ones we have today, are not just number crunching machines, but they can also use, recognise and manipulate symbols, which is what makes them useful. So if they can do that without assuming human intelligence, they can crunch numbers and read and manipulate symbols, that's known as weak AI. Now, you probably also will have heard of strong AI, which is the aim of developing artificial intelligence that is similar or comparable to human intelligence. You've got weak AI and strong AI. You'll also hear us probably talk about artificial general intelligence, AGI, and artificial narrow intelligence. Now, AGI is essentially a system that's proficient in all aspects of human intelligence. It can make connections between different areas. And narrow AI is about the use of AI developed for very specific or narrow purposes. Okay, 
So we also then have human level AI, which is AI that can at least match human capabilities in all aspects of intelligence. And we also have then artificial super intelligence, ASI, which is an AI system that is vastly more capable than humans in all areas of intelligence. So um, that's kind of where I want to leave it for now in terms of general definitions for different forms of AI so that you have a sense of what they are. Elena, do you want to correct me or add anything to that? I think just a caveat here that I am not an AI technologist. I did not code. I did not develop AI. I am uh, where I see it probably at the intersection of humanity, ethics, and just how people interact with the systems and how this technology can impact our lives um, and what we can do to shape this technology ethically. So if I were to contribute to any discussion, any anyway, really, I would probably um, be uh, more aligned with some of the AI ethicists and philosophers rather than a person who, who actually makes and creates. So um, and some people might have issues with that. Well, she doesn't know how to coach, she doesn't know how to develop AI. But I often say that everyone's um, views and opinions and voices matter. And as part of my role and my, my job, I'm trying to encourage young people from an early age to understand what this technology does for them, because it's been quite an interesting change, um, the changes that we have seen happen in recent years, but education has not changed and our young people are using social media tools without realizing that, um, you know, these tools are powered by AI and mm. something shocking that I just came across yesterday, even uh, reading about latest um, Snapchat um, AI tool where uh, you can pretend, somebody pretended to be a 13-year-old girl um, talking about uh, her first experience with somebody who is something like 21 or 30 years older. And it was just terrifying to see how this AI system was just giving advice to this 13-year-old girl, um, you know, not understanding that she could potentially be groomed into a relationship and stuff. So it's, um, you know, kids are out there interacting and I want these kids to understand uh, some of the dangers, uh, but also how they potentially can join the industry and share their voices in the same way as I have joined with my background in social sciences, politics and war, um, still being able to contribute and being uh, quite vocal when, it, when, when I can see things that just make no sense and should not be happening at all. And I think that point about, you know, not being someone who codes, but we need everyone in on this. Yeah. This is something which... It's, it's become very clear very swiftly how much this impacts everybody. Exactly. And it's already impacting millions of people around the globe. As you say, whether we know it or not, whether it's through social media conversations or through people choosing to work with ChatGPT or Dali or whatever it might be. And also the fact, you know, if you think about the context, going back to 2020, the Google ethical AI researcher Timnit Gebru was fired because she was already voicing concerns about the large language models that we're now seeing in a much more sort of public way. And then other top leaders have since left. And in recent years, there's been a lot more vocal complaint around the lack of oversight, the lack of participatory engagement from people who would be using these tools, impacted by these tools, whose privacy and data and agency would be uh, impoverished by these tools. And so I feel like there absolutely has to be, it's almost like a um, kind of a civic assembly around what is it that we want from our technology and how do we actually make decisions that are likely to help support the things that we want. So yes, for medical use, perhaps. 
yes for helping us to create more just systems, more transparent systems, when it comes to justice, becoming uh, less biased in decision making. There's so much potential of what we could use these systems for, but I feel as though there's a, a real misalignment of values. And then the conversation swiftly moves to the question of, well, yes, this is fine in a sentence, human values, but human values often come into conflict with one another. So who, whose human values do we want to embed at the heart of whatever AI is created? Who gets a say and how do we begin to... I mean, this is such a thorny area and so complicated. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it is It is quite complicated. I'm a huge, huge fan of um, the work Timnit um, Gebru does and her colleagues. Um, I think since uh, leaving Google or getting fired from Google, which would be the right way to put it, um, she has since formed her own organization called Distributed um, AI Research, something like that. And her colleague uh, is now, I think, with Hugging Face, but they're both still working very much on these uh, large language models with Emily Bender. And there has been obviously quite a lot of criticism highlighted and it does go back to those um, days when she got fired and the reasons why she got fired. And I think even in those early days, she did point it out um, to Google that it would be too early to release any of these models and they should really not be deploying these into the public, something that um, I think a lot of us ethicists have been quite concerned that how quickly these tools came out and started um uh, being interacted with um, millions, you know, hundreds of millions of people jumped on this. And this really should never have happened in the first place. So public deployment is not something that would, should ever happen until these tools have been properly tested. And we have seen the potential risks and not just the biases and, you know, where does the data set come from, but just in general how they behave, because we're really, again, dealing with this, um, you know, something we don't know very well, um, how it can potentially recreate itself or create its own systems, which is what we have seen it um, it can potentially do. But um, with a lot of the systems uh, that are being developed, we don't even know where that data set, that training data comes from. Um, and there is a lot of stuff that we do not know enough about this technology to just get it out. So we've kind of, in the world of startups, um, in scale-ups, we often talk about this old adage. I think it's it was Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg who um, mentioned it that you know, um, build things, break fast. You know those kind of yeah. really strange things that might work for some stuff that you're developing and deploying. Uh, but when it comes to AI, you cannot build it fast and deploy it fast and like it let it break things fast because it can be quite dangerous, as we have seen. Um, and we don't have um, time um, to experiment, nor should we experiment on people's lives. It's completely unethical. Um, and the onus is really on those who are developing those large language models systems to prove it to us, to the public, to the people that they are safe. Yeah. Um, it is not for us to point out, hey, I was just interacting with, um, with um, you know, ChatGPT, and it just literally told me how to break into this um banking system or you know the other day I was watching a very interesting um, presentation by Tristan Harris uh, also formerly from Google who um, they were showing how um, you know within three seconds an AI can detect how you speak Natalie and then you could call your your mom or somebody pretending to be yeah. you could call your mom get all of your you know personal security data and national security and whatnot or I don't know some other data that maybe your partner has got on you um, that can get them 
help them get into your bank and just really brain it all. It's it's really going to be as easy as that. So every all locks that we have had invented, you know, the cybersecurity uh, has been literally compromised just by virtue of us using this kind of technologies. And uh, the, there has been people who have already managed to get to the bottom of um, a lot of things that can easily break. Um, and ChatGPT was able to to help them with that. So it's I can imagine this is um, you know um, an, a massive issue when it comes to cybersecurity and people working in this field are probably tearing their hair out, wondering, you know, what happened and how can we prevent this from uh, creating further damage? Because we are definitely going to be seeing the rise of uh, deepfakes, um, you know, when it comes to um, image, but also when it comes to voices, um, you will not be able to detect um, that voice. It is really as good as that. And these are really early days that we're still talking months and months of this being just deployed out there. And uh, imagine what will happen in a year in a year's time. Even right now, I'm already seeing people just playing with this technology, and it shouldn't be like that. This is not a playground. Um, this should be just the domain of researchers. By all means, use it for your research. But even when Facebook released their um, their model um, just uh, you know a few weeks ago, uh, it already got into the hands of people it should not have gotten into. <laughs> for Chan, I think managed to get hold of it, and it's um, it's. Yeah, it should not be like that. It's completely security is compromised. And um, I can imagine this is going to cause more damage than than anything good in the very short, medium term. Mm. And it's not something I would like to see, to be honest. Every time I open the newsletter and newspaper or read the news, um, that is the first thing I'm seeing being reported, how people are quite easily able to abuse this technology. Um, We remember too well when Tay um, happened and was released by Microsoft, Yeah, you know, got shut down just because it started, uh, you know, spitting out all of this abusive stuff, um, you know, very um, uh, sort of Nazi oriented. Um, and we don't want this to happen again, but it's happening. There are many more people interacting with these LLMs right now. And um, the worst is yet to come. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brace yourselves. And it's crazy. In one of the articles that you shared with me, titled The Inside Story of How ChatGPT Was Built from the People Who Made It, and they draw quotes from the people who built ChatGPT. And one of them that really struck me, and I'm going to quote it here from Jan Leek. Mm-hmm. I think it's very difficult to really anticipate what the real safety problems are going to be with these systems once you've deployed them. So we are putting a lot of emphasis on monitoring what people are using the system for, seeing what happens and then reacting to that. And for me, that sums up the root of the entire issue, which is, fuck it, let's see and let's pursue power on the global stage and let's pursue uh, shareholder value. And from what was supposed to be, at least with OpenAI, initially a kind of a humanities led exploration into the possibilities of AI. They've now got massive funding. And of course, it's very easy to see how human greed, as throughout history, comes into the equation and then creates a beast, which, especially in this instance, is particularly dangerous. And I think one of the other things that's frightening about this, I was reading elsewhere. Let's see if I can find it. It was basically the idea that, uh, oh, yeah, this is it. The idea of intelligence explosion, Mm -hmm. which is that once humans are able to create AI that reaches a certain level or quality of intelligence, that it can then have the agency and the skills to be able to design its own AI at a level more advanced than humans, then you end up in a system where you've got an AI which creates a more intelligent AI, which creates a more intelligent AI in this kind of continually recursive, self-improving system where it's completely outside of the input of any human individual 
or committee. And that was an interesting thought experiment. I mean, it could be that it happens. It might be that it doesn't. But the fact is, we just don't know. So why risk or gamble? What are any of your thoughts around? I mean, that's a lot of, Mm. uh, yeah, there's a lot going on there. Yes, I think it's just in general, my view is that it's, um, it's just irresponsible, full stop. Um, it's irresponsible and um, somebody needs to take accountability. Um, I personally, and maybe this is a really strong view, um, but I'm going I'm to share this anyway. I personally think all LLMs should be shut down, full stop. There is no need to pause. We just need to remove this from the public mm-hmm. uh, spaces so that people are unable to interact with them in any form or shape, whether it's ChatGPT, or whether it's Dali, Midjourney, Quillbot, you know, anything that has got any form of um, language model system, uh, I would shut it for now uh, from the public domains. It needs to be something that perhaps the companies are welcome to carry on working on these systems and researchers can also play safely. But until it has been shown to us that it is safe to use, they should not be out being used by anyone. And to me, this is common sense. This is a no-brainer. And I expect there to be regulation to back exactly that. So there should not be um, any company or any individual uh, being able to access ChatGPT in its current form until um, OpenAI provides um, all reassurances and evidence to all of us uh, that it is actually safe to use. So it's, it's, really, it's really as simple as that. I also, on top of that, would like to see those um, um, you know, companies who are already using LLMs and where they have been shown to be already harmful, I want to see them well, in jail mm. or somewhere in the court system so that they are in front of a judge explaining how they have allowed this to happen and how, um, you know, they have already, uh, you know, created the harmful effects on uh, whether it's the children who are consuming these technologies, not knowing, um, you know, what the impacts will be, whether it is um, letting, you know, Kenyans in Kenya developing, you know, labeling those data sets. Still, I don't believe they have received any support, any, any mental health support after reviewing all of the uh, unbelievably harmful uh, data set that they had to label, uh, earning only a dollar um, per day or whatnot. Um, and it has been really well described and showcased in the um, African Business Magazine and various other publications. I think the Time has written a piece about this as well how this data set was labelled. So uh, people need to be accountable for causing harm, whether it's psychological harm whilst this technology was being developed or whether it is the consequential harm on, you know, whether it had um, some consequences um, on the children or people or the environment even because um, this technology has been shown to have monumental environmental cost. And so until I know it is safe, and it is ethical, I don't want to use it. Mm. It needs to shut down. People need to be made accountable. Some people need to go into prison for some of the things that they have done. And it's been happening already in Silicon Valley. We've seen Elizabeth Holmes, you know, being taken um, to court. Uh, Various other people who have developed apps like, um, you know, Frank and uh, 
cryptocurrency people who are also now kind of um, accountable for what they have done and the, the harm that they have caused through the decisions that they've made. So those decisions should never have been made in the first place. So I have a very sort of hardline policy sort of thinking around this. And I just, if any technology is proven to be harmful in any form or shape, it should not exist. It's really as simple as that. So TikTok should not exist because it caused children to um, to have suicides as well. So Snapchat, again, you know, there are so many controversial platforms out there that are still being used. Um, when Social Dilemma film came out, uh, with all of the, despite all the criticism, uh, this was quite a shakeup in a way for people to see how these technologies were developed. The people who are developing social media tools, they themselves will not even let their own children yeah. use those technologies, you know, because they're unsafe. They're unsafe for the public, they're unsafe for the kids. If they are unsafe, they should not be there. Yeah. You mentioned a, an abbreviation, which is LNM. What does that stand for? Sorry, I'm using jargon, assuming every everyone who will listen, it shouldn't probably be done. So large language models. So it just stands for LLM, large language models. And if you listen to the latest Tristan Harris um, talk presentation, I'll share that with you as well. Um, he actually calls them golems. Um, oh, yes. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. They, I'm like, oh, that's a really good one. And someone else uh, I, yesterday was reading also an article. They already have created another sort of acronym, Machiavelli. So mm-hmm. it also stands for kind of similar things, but but it even has the traits of Machiavellian yeah. technology, right? <laughs> so it's really interesting how philosophy technology intersects, right? <laughs> so that's another area that I think is interesting in terms of how different parts of the world are responding to what feels like an intractable problem. So almost on a daily basis, I have this conversation with friends of mine. That I live in Barcelona, as most most of you listening to this show will know. And in the group of friends that I have, we're quite an international group. So there's someone from Venezuela, there's my partners from Costa Rica. I'm obviously from the UK. We've got folks from um, Germany, from Ireland. It's kind of, it's quite a mixed group, which is really lovely. And one of the things that's really interesting as a theme that comes up is how lucky we all feel to have been able to move to a country where we felt welcomed and where increasingly, at least on the mainland of the EU, and obviously this depends on where you live. I have family in France that would disagree with this and I think rightly so. But there, there is this sensation that at least in Europe, in general, people are not shying away from at least trying to understand the problem and mitigate some of the negative impacts, even though it's really complex. For instance, the EU is drawing up the Artificial Intelligence Act to try and regulate this sector. And while that's happening in the UK, the government, I think it was just this week, this was from the the Times, actually another article you shared with me. Mm -hmm. The UK is apparently taking a lighter touch pro-innovation approach, which I read as... We're just going to create a situation where, unlike the EU, surveillance will be more possible, privacy rights will be absolutely trampled, just because of the context and the history of of what's happened previously. But what is interesting is that, at least in the EU, there seems to be a desire to understand and reduce the risks posed by AI. And we've seen this in Italy, where they've banned the use of ChatGPT. In other countries as well, there seems to be um, a similar move taking place. What do you think about the role of maybe citizens and politicians using law, using legal frameworks to at least, if not stop, then slow down the use of or the public use of some of these platforms? Um, I think uh, definitely we are progressing, uh, not as fast as I would love to progress, um, 
Um, I definitely think there is a long way to go uh, for us to speed things up and be a little bit more upbeat when it comes to this kind of changes because technology is moving at a very, very fast pace and regulation or laws have not kept up. It doesn't mean to say we don't have the laws, the existing laws to an extent could already be suitable for some form of regulation. And I believe this was the argument Italy has used that it is against GDPR. So they do uh, value, you know, GDPR as a kind of overarching, overarching um, um, law that could potentially govern the data privacy. And of course, when uh, ChatGPT has had this um, interesting hiccup within their technology where suddenly people have started seeing other other people's prompts and chats, hmm. um, which is, of course, again, GDPR. And that is something that Italy has jumped on and acted immediately, which I think credit to Italy, although a lot of people have moaned and complained, oh, Italy is not a very innovative country, so look what they're doing. Uh, to me, that was the right thing to do. I would definitely like to see more of this happen in other countries. Just stop it until it has been proved to me that it is safe. And to me, um, this is a no-brainer. And I personally, when I saw um, UK's very light-touch sort of approach, I was a little bit shocked because um, I have seen so much discussion going on in the UK. Um, I have been part of those discussions. I have... Um, you know, joined so many of the forums led by all parliamentary group in AI, of which I'm a member, uh, mostly advising on education elements, but still very much being part of those discussions and uh, making my voice um, heard loud and clear. And I know um, Lord uh, Clement Jones is also very vocal about it. So I was a bit surprised and I saw what he wrote as well. And I believe his reaction was also not uh, one uh, where he was excited to see that regulation um, because I think there is a lot more that should have been done and hasn't, and which was quite surprising. Mm. It's not like we've only just started talking about it last year. We have been discussing um, developments within the AI space and innovation for a long, long time. And although this country wants to be seen as the leader in innovation, and it's kind of understandable why that light touch approach would be taken because of course we are in the times of recession and we don't want any laws or regulations to dampen this enthusiasm for potential innovation or whatnot and of course this country wants to be seen as leading on innovation and AI but still I feel it should have been uh, tighter. I definitely want to see more uh, stricter regulation when it comes to um, companies developing those models. And like I said, the onus is on the companies. The weakness of, of GDPR in general, I feel, is that, um, you know, if I if I spot there is a, you know, company that calls me or whatnot, and, or I'm subscribed to the newsletter that I never consented, I can easily report them to ICO. And I do, actually. <laughs> but um, it shouldn't be yeah. on me to spot those gaps and things and tell ICO, hey, there is this company that just keep harassing me, you know, cold, cold calling me and sending me all these newsletters I never signed up to. It has to be on the companies themselves um, to show it to us that they are actually safe to work with. So, um, and, 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 and that's how the regulation should be framed and created. And there should be no technology released until there is a something that certifies them to be safe. It's like you go to a supermarket mm. and you know, okay, these are organic eggs because I know, you know, there is a stamp, there is something that certifies these to be organic foods. Um, 
due to how they were grown or, you know, farmers markets and whatnot. So there needs to be something similar within the AI industry, which certifies and there is a stamp of approval. This is safe to use. It has been tested for various risks, all risks listed. It has to be properly explained to the people, to an ordinary person that doesn't really understand the nitty gritty and depth of technology. Very, very easy. It has to be transparent. Um, how was this developed, but also how are you going to use this data? So there are all these checks um, and lists that have already been created. There are hundreds of frameworks that have been developed by big and small companies, research institutions. We don't need to go back into this. They are already there. But it has to be done by the companies themselves through various audits, probably not even one company to audit, but um, it has to be sort of various systems created where it doesn't just go through one company that proclaims to be the auditor of all AI systems, but it has to be done in a way which is mm which has input from different agencies. And, and that shows to me that, okay, they have definitely taken X, Y, and Z into account. It is safe to use. Fine, I will use it, right? It shouldn't be just deployed to the mass public for them to be surprised. Oh, I didn't know it can do this. And I didn't know it can do that. And by the way, I've just created this coach that does whatever and doesn't show, you know, we don't know where the data set comes from. ChatGPT is still... Uh, has not uh, OpenAI has not released that information yet. We knew more or less what ChatGPT three was built on, but not so much on um, ChatGPT four and various other LLMs. And it's not the only one. OpenAI is not the only one that's developing these systems. There are systems being developed in many different countries. There are mm. some there is some underground development that's happening we don't even know about. Um, so there are lots of companies that are using them, and we don't have the information about not enough information has been released to for us to make that informed decision. But also, like I said, it's not for us to make or investigate and understand how this was built and is it safe for me and my family or my uh, you know network to use. But it is for the company to show to me that it is safe. And it has to be the laws um, or various agencies that will put a stamp onto this technology to say, yeah, it is safe to use. It's actually okay. Companies can use it. Individuals can use it. It hasn't been done yet. And that is what I want to see. And I believe China, interestingly enough, is ahead of the game because I have seen uh, Chinese government um, deeming LLMs, uh, l- large language models, to be unsafe in a way that it can transpire <laughs> about some of the perhaps... Um, dodgy or naughty things that China is doing in relation to certain groups of population in China or whatever is happening in, um, you know, in Mm. Tiananmen Square um, and whatnot. So, of course, their concern is different. It's about how can our maybe not so democratic practices be revealed to the public when we don't want them to be, be. Um, how can we keep all our operations or things we do in China um, secret and to China? Or whatnot. So they are kind of putting uh, some regulations and laws together, but uh, it's because something else got triggered. It's because they don't want certain information to come out. So they have different reasons. And if, if they do release those laws fast enough for everyone else to learn from, I think that's, that's a good thing. I personally would like to see the same happen um, in the UK very fast, because I think we, are, we need this to come out very fast and very soon. And I know EU probably will be releasing something very soon because we're already in April. And I believe, from what I remember, this should have been released, um, you know, March, April. So we're probably expecting this to come out very soon uh, to see how this will really affect the current developments. 
And, and again, I really do hope to see very strict and very strong regulation where the onus is placed, responsibility is placed on those who are developing. And there is needs to be some uh, ownership and responsibility taken by them. Mm. It's interesting you're talking about um, the ways in which we can come to agreements on how to proceed, though, and also kind of informing the public in a way that is clear and graspable. One of the things that I read in an article that you said by Gary Marcus, who wrote a substack on this, <laughs> and the substack title is I'm not afraid of robots, I'm afraid of people. Within exactly. that article, he cites a guy called Judea Pearl who had tweeted, and I'm going to quote here, I'd strongly support the idea of a Manhattan project of intense research to make machines more trustworthy and interpretable, regardless of or in parallel with a moratorium, such as the one that was um, signed by Elon Musk and various others. And then I'm going back to the quote. The premature superinvestment in non-interpretable technologies is the core of our problems, end quote. So this, that the fact that billions are being poured into technology, which is hard to understand, hard to interpret, hard to predict, um, is, is, is huge. And then what's curious to me, like you mentioned, you know, China has already blocked ChatGPT. In Iran, North Korea and Russia, there have been moves to block it as well. And it's one of these things where you just think, okay, there's clearly in, in the countries where there is less democracy of those listed, you can see the benefits of keeping tight reins on um, a specific party line. And yet, I have also seen in other places, the potential for creation of misleading information, most famously, which everyone probably would have seen, the deep faked images of uh, Trump getting arrested a couple of weeks ago. Yes. You know, this is just one example, right? Or for instance, I read a headline of, and sort of the first few paragraphs before deciding to read something a bit more stimulating. There was something around how Rihanna, her voice had been deep faked as singing one of the Beyonce songs. And I listened to it and I was like, okay, I mean, but it points towards something really important. No? Like, and the artists who are now in the States saying, well, hang on, again, back to this training data, we never gave consent for you to train your generative image uh, AIs on our content, on our, which is not content, it's art. Like all yeah. of these things, it's, I mean, it's, it's just rife for lawsuits. And I think that might be one yes. of the only languages, at least that the US may understand, is, right, we're going to sue the heck out of you. Yeah, I definitely expect many more lawsuits to happen um, against all sorts of companies, um, people mm. just randomly creating these images without other people's consent to use those images. Um, you know, there have been calls for uh, Dali, you know, Midjourney, the, the image generating um, uh, models to have like a watermark so that people know this actually is not real. <laughs> this has been created, generated. Mm. But still, there, there are existing yes. lawsuits um, and there will be more. And I actually hope so, because this is an opportunity for us to, um, to push back and tell these big companies like Microsoft, like Google, like Facebook, enough is enough. You know, this is really an important yeah. turning point where I definitely can see people uh, expressing their agency and their right to something that has been taken away from them, you know, because there are a lot of artists who will suffer as a result of their work being used without their consent. And that is also related to, you know, people who produce music, people who, you know, produce songs um, and every creative industry, I imagine, as well. 
So it is very important that people carry on and do this because this is the only way um, to, to really regain control of our own lives. And I think where this is where if I were to see more agency, I want people to come out and to tell those companies, to tell the world what matters to them, what matters to their families, to their children. And I really, um, you know, applaud people like, you know, Tristan Harris, for instance, pointing out, you know, how things could manifest in um, social media, that there are certain, you know, um, LLMs that are being deployed without us really understanding how this will interact and behave um, when it comes to um, interacting with customers. Um, I definitely want there to be more lawsuits against companies like uh, Microsoft, because I personally do not think this was the right move on the part of Microsoft to invest into OpenAI so early and let it deploy this onto the public en masse. And Microsoft using these LLMs, in integrating this into every single stack they have, this is just going to be yeah. um, insane and crazy. So I was not happy at all when Satya Nadella came out saying, oh, I just want you know to see Google Dance and whatnot. This is really not the reason to develop technologies. There is no need to have that race, which we, you know, we don't even know what this is going to produce. And you're already seeing this rise of various deepfakes and, and whatnot. And a lot of people will be abusing this technology. And that is unfortunately the nature of, you know, of, of such innovation in quotation, right? Mm. So it was taken out um, into the public too early. This should never have happened. And companies who invest into such rapid deployment and development should be taken um, you know, um, into account. And somebody needs to be responsible for this uh, because these LLMs, they are powered by a lot of money, by a lot of greed, by a lot of thirst for profit. It's the shareholders who are profiting from these technologies who want this to happen really fast. There is no need for Elon Musk to create another company. Of course, there are some who will say, well, we don't want there to be a monopoly. There will not be a monopoly. This technology is not difficult to develop. Um, a lot of companies are already developing, developing it. So for Elon Musk to also go ahead and say, oh, I'm just going to develop one of my own, there is no need for this. Um, people are not questioning, you know, what is the purpose of that race? What's going to happen? What's the end game? What is mm. the long-term consequence? Everyone is doing this because they are greedy. They are thirsty for power profit and whatnot. It's so depressing, isn't it? It <laughs> is. Kind of, you know, I was reading about how, um, you know, in, in the UK, one of the reasons that I find, one of the things I, I dislike most about the UK is the amount of surveillance and CCTV, especially living in London, which I did for many years. And I adore London. But yeah, you're constantly tracked. And one of the things I was reading in the Artificial Intelligence Act that was proposed in 2021 was that there was an attempt to ban some AI applications like social scoring, um, some instances of facial recognition, for instance, of live feeds in crowds, uh, of manipulation, certain specific uses of AI which are deemed high risk. But I think what you're mentioning here when you're talking about the thirst for greed is that all of these things have an element of human fallibility baked into them. And the thing that I find the most concerning is, and it's the flip side of my optimism for what AI could do, again, it's always this kind of duality that is just so evident to me, is that while AI could potentially, if we chose to intentionally uphold certain 
pro-flourishing of life values that reduce bias, that encourage the potential for dignity of life, you know, whether that's reducing misogyny or inequity in other forms, like that's, that's where it could go. And the likelihood is that a few bad actors get into a position where the amount of power, which already corrupts anyway, the amount of power available makes it impossible for us to create a system which is more regenerative and that does support us to evolve, not just in terms of the tools we can create, but in terms of the compassion and empathy that we that we can inhabit. I just, I worry about that. Me because too. For a lot of us, checking out ChatGPT, you know, it, it's it's fun and people want to play. We want to be excited. We want to dream. We want to escape sometimes. And, and I feel that some of those um, urges or impulses are very easy to hijack and that this is another example of this happening, but with the stakes being so, so much higher. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. That worries me as well. And particularly when I learned, I think it was um, like a mini documentary I watched from um, Reuters, Zoe Tabary, I think. Mm-hmm. I'll share that with you as well after the um, after this podcast. But what it shows is that a lot of the surveillance technology that this government uses, the UK government uses, actually has been developed in China. Wow. And in China, they use this technology for other reasons, of course. Because, of course, they do have um, um, certain ethnic populations and groups in China who um, are being uh, surveyed and abused and uh, repressed. Mm. And so we're using that technology that has been developed for that specific reason here in the UK for mass surveillance as well, which uh, I also have uh, massive issues Mm. um, with. And it just makes me want to just run away, hide and (laughs) just... Let the world carry on just without me. It's um, it's quite dangerous and it's uh, um, upsetting. I remember I actually studied this very topic as part of my war studies um, degree at my master's level here at um, uh, at King's College London, and this was one of the matters that really um, kind of concerned me the most. That we have certain freedoms that are being taken away from us in front of our noses, and there is so little we can do. And they're just justifying this. Oh, this is for your safety. Just in the same way as trace and track, you know, technology was developed during COVID. Oh, this is for your safety. We're just going to track everything. And I think the latest uh, one was uh, when we're meant to be hearing this loud sound, um, you know, as a a kind of siren uh, on our phones. Uh, I don't know whether you've seen this. Um, It's going to happen in the UK. Oh, God. Um, And everyone will have to hear the sound and enable it or ensure and this is for the government to notify the people of any potential emergencies seriously or things yeah it is serious yeah and of course um for somebody like me who um was um a sort of a survivor of domestic violence um imagine um you know somebody in current situation of um domestic violence and um a really yeah. dangerous situation where they might have a second telephone oh my gosh or some emergencies and whatnot and that ringing with a perpetrator knowing that oh apparently my my, my wife has got something else or my husband you know mm-hmm. it depends because domestic violence of course can can happen in in many ways but it's um this is what we are kind of expecting and waiting to, uh, for it to happen. There have been a lot of um, this is insane uh, stuff coming out that uh, the government didn't really take uh, into account certain types um, of situations where it could actually be quite dangerous 
to have this? And also, why should I enable this tracking system? And why do I suddenly need to have the government telling me about certain things? It kind of raised a lot of suspicion. It's just really weird. This is terrifying. But, But also, like, I mean, there's so many things. One is that if we had a more representative government, there would be people who have experienced all kinds of trauma within that government able to speak for those who are most at risk. Exactly that, yes. Number one. And I think then the other part as well is how do we begin to fight this? I remember with, and it's it's connected with this kind of ever-tightening noose of freedom. And for me, it connects very visibly to, for instance, the recent situation that happened where the last remaining parts of Dartmoor and actually of the UK that were open for wild camping were enclosed by a very wealthy man. And people tried to overturn it. And as yet, you know, we're still unable to camp, wild camp on this land, which is supposed to be a commons. And it's this tightening, is a lack of freedom and agency. And every time I hear something like this, especially when it comes to the UK, it just makes my blood run cold. Yeah. Yeah. It's very um, concerning. It's concerning. It's getting worse and worse. How do we fight back? How do we fight back? Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Um, I don't know whether the people feel like it is safe for us all to get together because I think even uh, some they have amended uh, and altered some of the regulation related to protests. Oh, yes. Um, you know, so so that's another thing that has been taken away. So it's uh, it's, it's very difficult. I uh, I have been a believer for a long time that sometimes revolutions need to happen because they need to happen. Yeah. As much as I um, am, a, you know, pro peace and um, and everything else, there comes a time when enough is enough, and people will be coming out uh, on this onto the streets, and I think we will see this happen. And not only in France and um, Israel and other parts of the world, but I think it will happen. It has to happen in the UK. Um, and I dare say it will be the people whose livelihoods are at risk, yeah. um, who are going to feel that um, economic recession. And they're probably not going to be your bankers and people who work in big companies. They will be ordinary people who will have had enough. They will also be young people who are also seeing a lot of injustice, you know, in their 20s, early 30s, who will be out there on the streets telling the government that enough is enough. Um, It needs to happen. And I personally think it's a matter of time only. Wow. I mean, every time I touch into these kinds of conversations, and I'd really rather not be having them as as wonderful as you are. And as, you know, with our previous chat that we had before this call, it's, it's this thing of if we don't look now and lean into these questions now, we're not going to have the chance to revisit these later. Like, it's not comfortable to think about everything that could be going wrong. And so as a corollary to that, I want to ask, with all of the research that you're doing, and you do have children, and for those who are listening who have children around them, whether it's their own or you know nieces or nephews or godchildren, what have you, when you're digesting all of this and thinking about ways in which to positively shape the future, how do you orient yourself towards living, towards life, towards keeping going, towards being proactive when things get really Mm. painful or difficult or frightening? Yes, that's a difficult question. Uh, For us in the family, I I guess I'm lucky, my my daughter is now 20 and uh, we talk about um, things and about life and about um, AI almost every day. (laughs) It's it's a a kind of a common topic um, at our dinner table. 
And of course, my son, who is only nine, he, he is part of those conversations. To me, education is not just, you know, what, what they do in school, but it's very much what we talk about yeah. at dinner tables. It's what we talk about on weekends. It's what we talk about when we are together. Um, so it's very important that we continue talking and uh, listening to the news, discussing, reading the papers widely, not just, um, you know, a certain type of paper, but really it's important to encourage critical thinking and debate within the families and within communities as well. So I personally um, see myself, not only a lot of people think, oh, um, Elena, you know, we do hackathons, events for kids, for corporates and whatnot. But there is a much wider mission there where I see myself almost as a, as a catalyst for uh, trying to instill um, some purpose in young people's. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it happens through a process. It happens when... They come and they just want to learn to code, but actually what they are learning is a lot more than that. They are learning to identify what's happening around them in their lives. They are learning how to understand what the problems are in society, uh, whether it's related to climate change or health or anything else. And they're learning how to take control, how to... Um, how to express some agency and they're being shown that they can create the life that they want to see. They can create the change they want to see in the world. Mm. And it's a really powerful thing to be able to finally understand that I'm not just a follower in this life. I actually am an agent and I can create something really powerful. And we have seen kids uh, quite literally transformed through the experience of coming and spending five days in our program where we teach them design thinking, we teach them how to build technologies, we uh, get them to interact with some mentors. But through that process, the one thread that is so important that runs through every program that we run is you are the agent and you are capable of standing up for what matters to you. And for some, it can be, you know... Um, there is something happening within climate change. There is that eco-anxiety that a lot of young people experience. But I'm not just going to absorb all of it. And I'm not just going to be there to see the world fall apart. I will be there to build something that could potentially make a difference to climate. And that's what drives the young people that come to us. And of course, we've only just worked with, I don't know, 10,000 or 12,000 young people across the world, but it's a movement that's being, um, it's, it's growing and it's almost like a quiet revolution that I see. A lot of people think, oh, it's just hackathons, it's fun, they just come and build, but it's not because there is one thing when you can learn how to code and there is another thing where you can learn how to code responsibly in a way that will actually make a real difference to the world. Mm. And that is what I would like to think that I'm doing. And so I'm hoping in five, ten years we'll have this younger generation. And of course, I hope that the majority of the people that come to interact with our programs will be those responsible people who, like my daughter, will say no to Google and say yes to IBM. Just because somebody who she valued, like Timnit Gebru, got fired from Google. And that's and that a strong accord and in her. And she felt like this is so weird. Why would Google do that? She is an amazing researcher. 
why would suddenly Google fire Timnit Gebru, who has been doing some phenomenal research, you know, within AI ethics? And this is actually a real story. When they called her, she was applying to for an apprenticeship at Google and IBM. She had a conversation with both companies and she told Google, I am going with IBM. And they said, well, why? We're better. We have free food. We have the salaries higher. It was actually higher uh, than what IBM offered to her as an apprentice. Um, you know, we're Google. This is just IBM, but we are Google. And she said, no, but you have fired one of my favorite AI ethicists. And also, by the way, Google. IBM former CEO was a female, so there is that role model that, you know, I'm aspiring to be like. So there are certain values that I was pleased that somehow <laughs> we managed to nurture those values that have become apparent in her choice. And I want to see this younger generation of my daughters and younger of the same age, perhaps, to have the audacity, to have the bravery to take those really difficult decisions based on their values and foundations, which we as a society, not only as parents, but collectively as society, have the responsibility to nurture. And I see people like Victoria and other people who she works with and the generation that will come after her, whether they interact, well, hopefully they're the ones that interact with our programs, they will be the ones to walk out of the big companies like Facebook, Amazon, Google, who are conducting themselves in less than ethical ways, something that will raise and wake up those kind of foundations, say, what? Amazon is abusing you know, labor laws and are not treating their employees well. Why should I be aligned with a company like this? I'm out. Google, what's Google is doing? They're doing X, Y, and Z or Microsoft. I always say if you're good enough to work at Microsoft, you're good enough to build another Microsoft. Just make sure it's a more ethical one. This is actually what I say to young people. So the Hume the say that a lot or Google or whatnot. So I'm hoping that there is hope. For me, the hope is with the young people, the people who are around us, who are seeing what's happening and they will not just sit there and wait for things to happen to them. They will make things happen. And it is for us as a society, as a collective, to empower them and waken, awaken them up, wake something in them that will give them this opportunity to say, I am the agent. I can build things. I can make things happen. And I can make this world a better place. And I think that's what my job is. So anyone that's listening to that has got families, friends and whatnot, just let them be aware that <laughs> things are happening and they are powerful enough to make a change. Elena, thank you so much. If people want to learn more about your work, obviously we'll include lots of links into the show notes. Where's the best place to find you? Oh my goodness, on LinkedIn, I suppose. On LinkedIn, I'm, I mean, I'm active on LinkedIn, on Twitter, um, and just, yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me. <laughs> I'm more active there than anywhere else. So LinkedIn is, and just thank you so much for your generosity and your kindness in coming on and sharing all of the information you did with me and with our, with our lovely listeners. <laughs> thank you for having me. Um, it's good to see you and Natalie, and well, I'm sure we'll catch up again and speak again. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. 
If you've enjoyed the show, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen and leave a rating and a review. It really does mean the world to me to read your support, and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work creating, recording, and producing each episode. To find out more about my work, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources, and you can reach me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. Thank you.